purpose is transforming the world of work and business. Those leading the way are values-based and people-focused leaders who see business as a force for good. Host Kevin Monroe explores how tapping into the power of purpose infuses your business with meaning and touches the lives of your employees while positively impacting the communities you serve. With the Higher Purpose Podcast, here's Kevin Monroe. Welcome to Episode 98 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. I'm so excited because we've got a treat in store for you today. This episode is another first for the podcast. I mean, it's episode 98, and here's a first. All of the preceding 97 episodes of the podcast have been recorded in the studio. Today's conversation is the first that we're recording in the field. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know that I believe coffee shops are a great setting for conversation. And I often ask guests, if we were in your town, where would we be tucked away having this conversation? Well, today we're recording this conversation from the circuit. It's the co-working space here in my hometown of Woodstock, Georgia, where I live and the space where I work and connect with fellow entrepreneurs. And this week, the week we're recording, which is will actually be the week preceding the airing of this, marks the grand opening of Alma Coffee Shop here at the circuit. Several months ago, I met Harry and learned that he and Leticia are fifth generation coffee farmers from Honduras. So last week, I'm here at the circuit working. They're busy putting finishing touches on the new coffee shop, and I engaged in conversation with Leticia's father, Al Lopez. Al's a fourth-generation coffee farmer. As Al and I were talking, it was apparent that their story is a story of higher purpose and a story worth sharing with you. So here we are. We're sitting here drinking fresh cups of Alma coffee, and I invite you to pull up a chair, brew up a cup of your favorite beverage, and join in the conversation that is every bit as rich and robust as this cup of Alma coffee. So, Al Lopez, what a pure delight to welcome you to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Kevin. It is truly an honor to be here. Yes, it is. And Al, I'm just so excited. I mean, I've told the listeners in the introduction, I mean, this is the first time I've sat face to face, literally. It's usually via video conference, but you and I are in the same room drinking Alma coffee, which is what we're here to talk about today. And we're just going to have a fun conversation. But the way I like to anchor every conversation, Al, is in gratitude. So what is something you're grateful for today? Wow. Life. Okay, say more. Kevin, I am <laughs> grateful for life. To be in your presence and to have an opportunity to be doing what we're doing is just amazing to me. And I am grateful for that. Every morning I wake up, I thank God, I pray in my own way. And this morning when I open my eyes, big smile on my face, and I said, I am grateful that I'm going to have this meeting with Kevin today. 
Oh, wow. Al, and I'm telling you, I woke up with that same kind of excitement, anticipation. I met your son-in-law, Harry, some months ago, heard the story of what you all are doing. And folks, this is an exciting week because we're having this conversation today. And this is the week of the grand opening of Alma Coffee at the circuit here in my hometown of Woodstock, Georgia. So Al, let's go back. The other day, so here's the backstory. Al and I met. I came to the co-working space one day last week to work. Al was standing there doing some things, getting their shop open. Al and I engaged in conversation. And in that conversation, Al didn't know I had a podcast. But at the end of that conversation, I'm like, hey, are you willing to join me on a podcast and talk about this story? Because folks, the story you're about to hear is amazing. From my perspective, is it is a story of purpose, of higher purpose. So, Al, let's go back into your backstory. You're a fourth-generation coffee farmer. Is that, that right? That is correct, yes. Take us back to the Honduras and the beginnings of this, and then how you ended up coming to the USA. Well, Kevin, cut me off if I'm two hours into answering <laughs> that question. <laughs> it is quite the story, but I'll try to summarize it. So I was born and raised in coffee farms in Honduras, Central America, specifically the Copan region. And ever since I can remember, you know, my first memories are of me running in coffee farms Hmm. with my grandmother, with my grandfather, with my great-grandfather, who had coffee trees In his backyard, our backyards back at the farm were kind of big, and he would entice me to go pick the cherries, the beans, process them myself by hand, and then I would get to keep the coffee and sell it. Hmm. And the proceeds belonged to me. So I fell in love with coffee very, very early on. Rolled that forward. My parents marry in the early 60s, both teachers, and my mom was also raised in coffee farms, etc. In the early 70s, they divorce. So they marry in the early 60s, early 70s, they divorce in Honduras. My father meets a young lady from Chicago of Polish descent who's down there on a Peace Corps mission. So around 1972 or so, they marry. Dad ends up in Chicago as a result of that. Probably in 1973 or 74, Dad ends up in Chicago. And in 1977, he entices older brother of mine and myself to come to the U.S. Very, very difficult decision, Kevin, for my mom and for us as kids. At first, I said, absolutely not. I would not come to the U.S. I wanted to be close to mom and I wanted to stay home. But I had a dream, Kevin, and that dream was to someday have my own bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So my father, being the smart man. And you didn't see a path to that in Honduras. (laughs) No, not at all. And I had always asked dad for a bicycle. I wanted a bicycle. So being the smart man that he was, dad said, you know, son, if you come to the States, I will buy you a bicycle. And I said, dad, really, my own bicycle. I don't have to share it with my older brother. No, he said, you're going to have your own bicycle. Deal. 
<laughs> so that's 1977. We come to the U.S. Electricity, Kevin, was foreign to me mm. in 1977. I did not know what Coke in a can looked like. Wow. Indoor plumbing. Our running water in the house still today comes from the mountains. So there was no purified water. Mm. And, you know, my tasks in the morning were get up at 4 a.m., go to the farm, milk the cow, bring home the milk, bring home some wood for the stove, and then go to school. You know, it was a man's world, if I can say that, in the farm. And that's what we were used to. Mm. You know, mom would do the cooking or she had a lady that would help with the cooking. But, you know, the boys would come home after doing their chores and the meal would be served, whatever was being served that day for breakfast, lunch or dinner. You know, come to the States, right? We land. First of all, imagine two young kids. I was 11. My brother was 13. All of a sudden we find ourselves in an airplane. Mm. I mean, we barely had written cars. Wow. You know, the horse was the main means of transportation. That in itself is a story, you know, changing planes in Miami. For the first time, we see an electric escalator. Yeah. And not speaking English. Not a word. Yeah. Kevin, not a word of English. And when I saw that electric escalator, you know, I stopped to study it. And concluded that if we got on it, we would be swallowed at the end. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I stopped my older brother from getting on it. I was like, no, we're taking the stairs. <laughs> but that was part of the transition of coming from the rural environment into a mega city like Chicago, where, you know, the next day we wake up and I'm like, Dad, I'm hungry. You know, what do we do for food here? And he's like, well, that's a refrigerator. Hmm. that's a pantry, there's, you know, canned food in there, and there's eggs in the refrigerator, and if you're hungry, you cook something. Wow. That was complete news to us. So coming from the coffee farming world to Southside Chicago, where the world was just completely different, was a big sticker shock. Okay. So thumbnail of the next few years, because I don't want to spend too much time there because there's so much of the story I want to get to. But from 11 years old forward through school, you finish school, then what happens? So public schools in Southside Chicago, first week we're there, we are beaten black and blue because mm. I have this beautiful tan mm. and can't speak a word of wow. English. Wow. Talk about building character quickly. You know, that was an eye opener. My life dream, Kevin, where we went to school in Southside Chicago, unfortunately, no one spoke to you about college. Mm. I don't know if we weren't smart enough or what the deal was, but, you know, pretty much you had three options. One was do gangbanging, two, get involved with drugs somehow, or three, join the military. Mm. Sophomore year of high school, I joined the U.S. Army. I graduated in June of 83 from high school. Two weeks later, I was marching in Fort Benning, Georgia. Okay. And that was my dream. I was going to be a career military guy. Love the military. But, you know, God has his purpose for all of us. And I had an unfortunate accident in infantry school right before airborne school. And I ended up with a compound fracture. Bones came out, left forearm. And they thought I may lose the arm. 
Thank God I did not. Went through surgery a couple of times, steel plates, all that good stuff. But the military came back to me and said, Al, you can no longer fulfill your special forces contract. You can stay in as a mail clerk or get out <laughs> with an honorable medical discharge. So I had not joined the U.S. Army to be a mail clerk. So I decided to get out. Went back to Southside Chicago, was a factory worker for a while, loading and offloading trucks, melting pellets, company called Owens, Illinois. Another blessing, Kevin, my foreman, great guy, kept saying to me, Lopez, you have a head on your shoulder. Mm. Go to school. And I used to tell him, school's not for people like me. And he would say, Al, go to school. You have a head on your shoulders. I ended up at a junior college and quickly learned, Kevin, that I could do school, you know, and there was uh, AC in the summer, heat in the winter, a lot of beautiful young ladies walking around. I'm like, college is the thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I get my two-year degree with honors, move over to the University of Illinois in Chicago. I graduate with an accounting degree with honors. And I have a job offer from one of the big eight CPA firms back in the day called Coopers and Library. Mm -hmm. I started with Coopers. Kevin, what a blessing. You know, I clearly remember interviewing with this firm, waiting in the lobby with my suit from the Sears outlet store, which uh. was three sizes bigger than it needed to be, <laughs> and my tie from Kmart. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, I'm not good enough to clean the bathrooms here. Mm. What am I doing here? You know, I was terrified, but I got the job, had a phenomenal career with them. And then I moved over to Sarah Lee Corp, Fortune 500 company, whose world headquarters were in Chicago. I joined their mergers and acquisitions team and my career took off. Wow. And, uh, big wow. blessing, a lot of hard work. I was fortunate to have met the love of my life during college. And we married six months before I came out of school with no money, Kevin, zero uh, money. Funny story. You know, when we got married, my wife and I could not buy a refrigerator. Hmm. We kept our little milk and eggs on a cooler for a little while, but she was there behind me the whole nine yards. And 30 years later, you know, we're still Together, happily married, and in love. So that's pretty much the beautiful, the beautiful. story there. Okay, so one thing I want to call out here, and I do a lot of leadership work, and I'm always asking people, you know, was there someone who saw something in you that you did not yet see in yourself? And it was that foreman at Owens, Illinois, who saw that you had a head on your shoulders, right? You didn't believe that for a moment. But he saw something and encouraged you on a path. Absolutely, Kevin. And, I love that. Yeah. And there's been more than one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, all along my path, I remember clearly in the Army because I was devastated when I was laying in the hospital and my CEO company officer came over and he said, Al, you know, you're going to leave the Army. He said, I know you're young. He said, but someday you'll realize that this was the best thing that could have happened to you. Hmm. Hmm. He said, I don't expect you to understand that now. Wow. He said, but I know someday you will. And he was absolutely right. Hmm. Kevin, you know, my mindset has changed so much 
from those days to where I find myself today. Okay, so then, as I heard your story last week, I mean, there was some meteoric success in the business world. Give us the Cliff Notes version of that, however you want to share that out. I want folks to hear this because, I mean, here you went from 11 years old not even knowing English, and then tough school, going to Cooper's and Libra and thinking you don't even belong, and then finding your way, all of a sudden, you're in the C-suite. So it's been a phenomenal ride, Kevin. And again, you know, I've been blessed and I have worked my tail off and had the support of my wife. And I used another word the other day. We'll we'll just use tail for today. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, I joined Sarah Lee Corp and I quickly realized, Kevin, that, you know, I can do pretty much all the things that people that have gone to Harvard can do. And at times I'm feeling, you know, I can do it better Hmm. because I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of very smart people, great folks, learned a lot from them. But I grew up on the streets, Kevin. You know, I was selling stuff at the flea markets of Chicago every Saturday and every Sunday. And I was rumbling on the South Side. And I believe that the education I received there, it's very unique. And if you combine that with my undergrad from the University of Illinois, my MBA from Vanderbilt, my CPA and all that stuff, it's a phenomenal formula. I grew up through the ranks very quickly. I was chief financial officer for a division of Sarah Lee Corp in Mexico at age 29. Wow. I became a candidate to lead a $5.5 billion division for Sarah Lee Corp at age 30. And I retired at age 42, (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, as chief executive officer of a publicly held company. Okay. With a full board and all the challenges that come with it. So phenomenal career, 20 plus years. And my goal was to be CEO of a publicly held company. And I achieved that. You know, I learned, I grew up at Sara Lee, spent 12 plus years with them, spent a little bit of time with PepsiCo with Dole, the fresh fruit company, with Russell Corp here Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. We ended up selling the corporation to the Berkshire Group, to Warren Buffett. And then I went to become CEO of a publicly held company up in uh, Warren, Pennsylvania. Just phenomenal ride. Okay, so here's what intrigued me the other day. One of the things that intrigued me, you listening, there's so many things that I found intriguing on Al's story, and we're going to do a deeper dive on several of those elements here in the next few minutes. But at the peak of success, when there was so much more success to enjoy, right? Because in America, the belief is, so you were CEO of a publicly traded company, but there were bigger publicly traded companies that you could go be the CEO of, right? There's always this bigger, better, greater, that's the belief. So what was it that prompted you to check out? or to retire and say, okay, enough of that. There's something else I want to do with life. Let's talk about that. That's a phenomenal point, Kevin. So what prompted me was family. Hmm. I have been blessed with um, three beautiful women, my wife and two daughters. And at age 42, when I'm running this company, I'm spending most of my time on a plane to Asia, traveling all over the U.S., etc. I'm not spending 
enough time with my daughters who are only going to be this age once in their lifetime, Kevin. Mm -hmm. So I go back and I ask myself, what am I doing? Mm. What is the purpose of my life? Is it to continue to generate wealth for shareholders and for myself at the expense Mm. of not seeing my daughters grow up, not being there for them when they really need me? Is that what I'm really here for? And the response was, no. You know, I'm here to spend time with my wife and with my daughters. And how much is that worth? Right. Because when I decide to stay away, to sort of check out from the corporate world, Kevin, I have recruiters that, you know, I was on the radar all the time. And a lot of them are calling me, Al, what are you doing? I remember one of them specifically saying, Al, you have put in all the hard work. You're bilingual, bicultural. (laughs) You're CEO. Right. You're a CPA. You're an MBA. You can write your ticket anywhere. That's right. He goes, you know, $40 billion companies, you will be the chairman. You will be the CEO. What the hell are you thinking? Do you know the money that you're giving up? And I looked at this individual and I said, what for? Mm. To feed my ego? I love money, Kevin. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But I grew up in a place where, you know, it wasn't about money. Yeah. Right? Um, Yeah. And I've been fortunate to have made money that I never even dreamed of. You didn't even know that much money existed. That is correct. (laughs) Kevin, one of the reasons why I decided to go to college was because I heard that if you were a good accountant, you could make $30,000 a year, $30,000. And I said, I'm going to college and I'm going to be an accountant. I had no idea what being an accountant was. Hmm. Hmm. But in my head, I said, if I make $30,000, I can go back home, home being my hometown in Honduras, and I can buy the town. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now what year was this that you checked out of the corporate world? 2008. Okay. It was in 2008. Okay, so folks, there's a book that I'm going to interject into this conversation. I shared the book with Al last week when we met, and it's David Brooks' The Second Mountain. And I looked at Al, and I said, you know, you're a second mountain person. And Al's like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Uh, I grew up in the mountains. So I want to go into the second mountain. So about the same time then, you started being drawn back to Honduras. So talk about that, and what were the thoughts going through your mind then? And Because I don't know this, yeah. but I know that something amazing has happened over the past 11 years. So, And that's the part of the story. All of this other stuff is important, but it's just teeing up this part of the story. So let's go into that, Al. So before 2008, Kevin, I always had this idea of, it started as someday I'm going to go back to this hometown, right? And then as my life grew here in the U.S. and I married and the kids and my corporate career, it started being more difficult that someday I would go live there. But I was always attracted because my mom was there. My dad was there. He had returned back to the hometown. And then I started saying, I'm always going to try to help this town because there's just nothing there. No source of employment, no manufacturing, et cetera. So 
with the idea of always wanting to help. When I joined the military, the first paycheck I received, Kevin, I endorsed it to my mom, hmm. put it on an envelope, and mailed it back home. And I said, Mom, please get an indoor bathroom. Hmm. And in my mind, that was my way of helping. So roll that forward in 2008. Now I've had this successful career. I have a little bit of money, and now I have time. Well, what am I going to do with this time? Well, you know what? I'm going to go back and do something in this hometown of mine, and I'm going to help people. And what is it that our people do there? They have a cow, and they have a little coffee farm. And that is all we're known for, mm. Kevin. So in 2008, I have a lot of land in Honduras. I had been acquiring land from family that was in trouble. They needed money, and they would come to me. Can you help me? And I would try to help. One of the pieces of land that I had acquired was from my mother. It was when her and dad got divorced, they had two pieces of land. Dad took one and mom kept the other. In the early 2000s, my mom wanted to sell that. She put it on the market, no buyers. In 2001, I bought it from her with the idea of just helping her get rid of this headache, right? Because she was saying, son, you're never going to come and live here. Why would you want to purchase this piece of property. Now, 2008, I'm like, okay, I have this land. I want to help these people. What do I do? So I said, you know, I'm going to change the way we sell coffee, <laughs> the way we trade coffee, because all my family had been in coffee for over 800 years, Kevin, and we have always starved to death. Wow. You know, never has anyone made money in it. So I'm like, there's something wrong here. Well, I know well wait a minute. Let's be clear. <laughs> Never had anyone in Honduras made money. Very true. There were folks making money. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't the farmer. Exactly. More specifically, people in Honduras were making money with coffee, the exporters, right. some brokers, et cetera, but not the farmer. I said, you know, I'm going to help the farmer. So in 2008, I developed a strategy that I call D2R. And it stood for direct to roaster. I had figured out the supply chain and I said, there are all these links. I just got to interrupt here. You figured out the supply chain from all this work at Sara Lee and other companies where you've been educated on how the supply chain works, right? Exactly right, Kevin. And as a matter of fact, Sara Lee was the third largest green bean coffee buyer in the world. Once upon a time, we had a, I believe it was a eight plus billion dollar coffee and tea division hmm. called Dow Egberts. I never worked with the coffee and tea division. But you but got I educated. Learned, that's right. Yeah. I learned yeah. a lot about yeah. them. So I had figured out the supply chain that if I could go directly from the farm to a roaster, the farmer could make some money. So I set out to prove that concept. And in 2008, I started working on the farm and getting it ready for coffee. It was raw land, Kevin. And, you know, I brought in some folks that know a lot about coffee farmer. And I started building this farm with a different mentality. You know, I wanted all my farm workers to be happy at the farm, to sleep with a roof over mm. their heads. So I started building sleeping quarters with electricity, with cement, with bathrooms, 
plumbing. You know, I built my own water well. I ran the electric cabin from the town to the farm. I think it's over four kilometers to make that happen. And by 2016, we were producing coffee and I had started looking for my roaster. Through a great friend, Hal Wright, I met the owners of PJ's Coffee Company in New Orleans. After a couple of meetings, many meetings, I convinced them to take a trip to the farm and see what we were doing and how we were helping the community, how we were treating our workers. You know, we have our own tilapia pond. We have a dairy. Okay, wait a minute. Now, why do you have a tilapia pond? (laughs) With the idea of doing something different is, you know, to feed the worker. Yeah. Right? Uh, We have dairy cattle. So creating a far more humane work experience than any of these workers had ever known before. Exactly. Exactly. Kevin, we are probably the only farm with a little ambulance Mm. in it because during picking season, we will have 200 plus co-workers and a lot of them bring their spouses, et cetera, and they end up they like to give birth at our farm at Finca T because, you know, we'll rush them to a clinic, right? And when the baby comes home, here's my mother with a basket for the baby, blanket, diapers, bottles. <laughs> and guess who's getting milk first the next day? You know, it's the newborns, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's the babies. And, you know, my mom is all into that. And so people love to be at our farm and have babies at our farm. And it's... I didn't mean to take you off track, but it's just so important. I mean, I hear these things, Alan. It's kind of like, oh, it's easy to just kind of... We have a tilapia farm, but that's part of the holistic approach. And one of the things that you and I have not talked about much, but this whole idea of work I do around humans first, right? So you're wanting to create the most human-centric or humane work environment for these people and do something for them and empower them, not just take from them, not just extract value from them, but create value with them and for them. That's that's beautiful. Exactly. You know, throughout my corporate career, a lot of people ask me, Al, you know, you succeeded so early, you know, and What's the magic formula? Well, there isn't one, you know, <laughs> you, you got to work hard. But one of the things I always told them was people first. People first. People first. Kevin, and whether you're leading a Fortune 500 company or you're dealing with coworkers with zero education that can't read, can't write. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you follow that belief of people first, you will succeed. Yes, Your, sir. Whatever. Product. That's why you and I connected last <laughs> week so deeply. It was like, wow. So let's go back to the PJ story. I didn't mean to interrupt that because this is a story I want you to carry out here because it's a beautiful story. Phenomenal. PJs falls in love with what we're doing. And they tell me, Al, you know, there's a line of coffee farmers, suppliers, brokers trying to sell to us. And they all have these stories. But yours is for real. We're Mm. seeing it, right? So they went down there. PJ's obviously very bright leadership team there. They didn't just listen to the story, Kevin. They sent their master roaster Mm. 
down to see, to, as we say, you know, kick the tires, see the coffee trees, you know, see the tilapia pond, see the sleeping quarters. Uh, and then they said, no, this is really for real. You know, this is not a story. Right. This isn't a marketing. No. Hi. That's right. This is the real deal. And then they do a lot of great things for their employees, their communities. And they said, Al, we want to be a part of this too. So they, you know, adopted the farm, Finca T. And PJs goes down there every year, on average twice a year. They bring in franchisees. Mm. They're thinking about bringing potential franchisees, potential customers of theirs to see how they're helping this remote community in Honduras and how if we work together with this idea, Kevin, of people first, yeah, I mean, we can have positive impact Absolutely, absolutely. And so, so many things I love, and I've got to stop and call out a couple of these. And you listening, you know, I just get enamored with language. So I've heard you two or three times talk about your coworkers. Right. You've not called them the farmhands. You've not called them the bean pickers or what somebody else may call them or not even employees. These are your coworkers. Let's talk about that partnership that you see with the coffee farmers and how the other thing I want to make sure we talk about is your vision for the future, because I was blown away. I guess it was the Iroquois or whatever that, you know, started talking about three, four, five, six, seven generations down the road. The other day we're talking you're working to secure the future for coffee farmers 300 years from now. That's exactly right. So wherever you want to go with that, Al, let's talk about that because that's beautiful. So, Kevin, co-workers, we're a family. To me, that's the way I see it, right? And if you treat them right, if you make them part of that family, there's nothing these people will not do for you. Okay, so let's go deep in a story. The story you shared the other day, was it Marvin? Marcial, 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 my right-hand person at the farm, his official title, farm director. You know, when I set out to establish the farm, I said, we're going to have three foundation pillars, and they are improving lives, sustainable farming, and extraordinary coffee. And the idea, Kevin, was people first, right? First, improve the lives. Mm. I'm in this remote region of Honduras trying to make a positive change. So my key goal here is to improve the lives of many. The second one is sustainability, sustainable farming. I want to make sure everything that we do in the farm is for the good of everyone. And I have a vision, Kevin, that I'm not doing this for myself. I mean, I've been blessed. I don't have to, you know, I could just stay here and I'll be okay. I'm not farming to make money. Right. You know, I'm farming to make sure it's there and it provides a source of income for many others for the next 500 years. And the last thing is I'm here to produce extraordinary coffee. Right. And Alma will come into the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Alma coffee when we talk about that. But so the first thing I do is Marcial, whose official title is farm director. He came to me in 2011. And if we were to know the background 
of Martial, Kevin, you would say, Al, you are crazy to have taken somebody like that into your family. Martial was a very troubled kid. He was doing all the wrong things. But he came to me asking for an opportunity hmm. to change his life. And I gave it to him, Kevin. And this amazing young man has flourished into Mr. Rivera today. He is an example. He has a visa. He travels to the U.S. twice a year. He goes to the Specialty Coffee Association Expos with me. Still doesn't speak English, <laughs> but we've changed his life. He has changed his life. Mm -hmm. I was a vehicle for that. His family, his kids are going to school now. You know, he lives in a nice home. As a matter of fact, last month, he bought a home and a very nice house, a $60,000 home. I mean, it's an amazing story. But the very first thing I did with him when he came on board, Kevin, I told him, I don't need an employee. I don't need a farm director. I'm looking for a partner. Mm. And you know what we call each other? We call each other socios. Socio in Spanish means partner in English. And that was probably the best thing I could have done for him, hmm. Kevin, because hmm. it elevated his ego, first of all, that somebody like me was calling him socio partner. And then when people see he and I interact, they're amazed at how we treat each other through this so-called partner title, as opposed to me looking at him as an employee and him looking at me as a boss. It changes the dynamic mm. a lot, a lot. So, you know, when you treat everybody like that, you begin to have positive impact. You begin to change lives. Yeah. Can you talk about what happened on the last trip just last week with Marcial? Absolutely, Kevin. So I hosted PJ. I was down there for a three-week period of time, and PJ's was there for the first week. And then my wife joined me for the rest of the trip. And it just happened that Marcial's birthday was during that time frame. So my wife being the creative one that she is, she said, hey, let's do a little celebration for Marcial and let's make it a surprise. You know, us, the guys, we often don't think <laughs> that way. So I said, babe, absolutely. You know, you run with it. So, you know, birthday cake, some ice cream, balloons, they decorated our admin offices. And I called in Marcial and I said, hey, socio, you know, I need you at the admin offices. We're going to have a staff meeting, bring in all the workers that are with you. So he was like, oh, OK, you know, we're kind of busy, but, you know, socio, if you think so. I said, no, we need to to have this conversation now. <laughs> so they're coming in, Kevin, and my mom is there. Our other um, key partner in the business, Nelly, who has been with us since inception also. She's there and Marcial walks in and everybody's like, happy birthday. And we start singing. And here is a 38-year-old young man and he just choked up. Mm. Kevin and his son was there, William, who's 14. And, you know, we, we sang and I went and gave him a big hug and I said, you know, happy birthday. And we thought he was going to cry mm. and said, you know, Marcial, would you like to say a couple of words? And he couldn't. He just choked up. And then he said to me later on, he said, you know, no one had ever celebrated my birthday. 
before. And wow. Kevin, it was, you know, balloons, a cake, and some ice cream. But it meant so much to him. Yeah. And all the other coworkers, too, were like, oh, my God, like, this doesn't happen. You know, why are we here? They felt somewhat uncomfortable. And I asked each of them to say something about Marcel. You know, and at first they were like, so then somebody started and they said, honest, cares for others, unbelievable leader, Mm. you know, and they got into a rhythm. And that's truly who this young man is today, an unbelievable leader who's managing a multi-million dollar business down there. Wow. Okay. So... The other day when you and I were talking, I said to you, and I said this earlier in this conversation, you're a second mountain person. Folks, if you don't know the two mountains, David Brooks describes them in his book. The first mountain that we climb in life is the mountain of success. The second mountain is the mountain of significance, where the source of joy is not about us. It's not what we're amassing for ourselves. It's what we're doing for others. I know that was kind of a new concept to you, but (laughs) but you've looked into the article a little bit. Do you agree? I wholeheartedly agree, Kevin. And I I read the article twice. Yeah. And it was such an unbelievable fit. I had never heard of it being described that way, but I saw myself being, you know, a great fit for it. It's certainly the second mountain. I'm at a different stage of my life. So let me ask you, as a second mountain person, what gives you joy? Now, I mean, I just heard part of it is this birthday party. (laughs) Talk about the source of joy and how different joy is in your life now versus what it was when you were climbing the mountain of success. Oh, my God, Kevin, the difference is humongous. To sum it up, when I was in the corporate world in the first mountain, Success was defined by the paycheck, the bonus. If I sold a company, my golden parachute, that was success. Flying on private planes, you know, that was success. Today, success has nothing to do with profitability. Hmm. Today, Kevin, my return on the investment that I'm making is changing lives. Mm. is seeing Marcial being able to buy a $60,000 home. That is an unbelievable return to me. His nonverbals during the little birthday party celebration, I can't even describe the happiness that Mm. that brings to me. It's no longer about the profitability side. For me, success is about helping others. Kevin. Yeah. And to see my daughter, Leticia, and Harry, my son, son in law, but he's just my son, <laughs> with all due respect to his dad, yeah. that is beyond rewarding to mm. see these kids at such an early age wanting to continue this legacy of trying to help and do well for others. And at their, you know, young age of 24, 25, having a real impact, Kevin, on Marvin, on other coffee farmers. They're not only after success in our own farms, they're branching out and they're adopting other farmers to help them 
to bring him into this fold and helping them find a better life, a better quality of life for themselves, for their kids. It's just so rewarding. I wish I could describe it better, but you know. <laughs> oh, I see it. I see it, Al. Okay, so you listening, here's what we're going to do, actually. I wasn't sure when we started this conversation. We're going to make this a two-part conversation. So in next week's episode, you're going to hear the story of Alma Coffee from Harry and Leticia, which are Al's daughter and son. Yes. Uh, son-in-law, but son. So let's put a bow on this part of the conversation. What would you like to say to folks who at this moment may be so focused on climbing that first mountain? Help us just kind of realize there is something more, right? That Madison Avenue has done a tremendous job of convincing us all of what the good life is. But I think you found a different definition for how you define the good life. You know, that's a tough task. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so yeah. it took David Brooks like 300 pages in the book here. Well, you know, there's... A lot of phenomenal people out there chasing this corporate career. And, you know, the only, my humble advice would be ask yourself, what for? Yeah. And what is the purpose of it? Right. I asked myself that question. That's what got me here. What for? You know, when the recruiters are telling you, you know, you can be the chairman of a $50 billion company, et cetera. What for? I could. Yeah, I could, right? And yes, there's a lot of honor and pride yeah. in creating jobs, helping this wonderful country have a stronger economy, right? But if you succeeded in that, why not allow someone else to have a shot at it, right? And then dedicate your learning and your wealth hmm. to improving lives elsewhere. Kevin. Wherever your elsewhere is, exactly. right? Exactly. Wherever your elsewhere is. It doesn't have to be in another country, but there are others that all of us can help. And that's one of the things I highly recommend you read, David Brooks, The Second Mountain, you listening, because there always is another. And the thing I realized years ago, success is almost always about ourselves. Significance always involves others, some other. And your other were the people you grew up with, the community you grew up with. You felt very strong ties to give back there, to do something there. But you don't have to leave your zip code to find your other. Correct. Absolutely right. And I think if you ask yourselves those questions, you'll come to the right conclusion. And maybe, you know, your time is not when you're 42 years old. Maybe it's when you're 58. I would highly encourage you to do it at a point in your life where you can still enjoy it, right? Yeah. I have had the pleasure of working for billionaires in their late 80s who are miserable folks, right? They lost touch with reality and what is it that we're here for? Mm. I mean, how much money do you really need, Kevin? Yeah, well, I mean, the studies show, and I think the statistic has changed, but now... I think it's about $85,000, $87,000. After about $87,000, your quality of life 
does not dramatically change. Your basic needs are met. I always go back to Rockefeller, who was the first billionaire in the early 1900s, one time was asked, how much is enough? And his answer? Just, Just a little, a little bit more. more right? <laughs> right? So, I mean, there's this perspective that it's never enough. And so it's up to you and me to determine what is our definition of success and what is the lifestyle we're after, and then to figure out how we make a difference beyond that in the lives of others. So, Al, how do people, I know we're going to have this other conversation about Alma Coffee. Where do we point people that want to know more about this story and the work you're doing, the farms in Honduras? Where do we point people to learn more? So, our website at www.myalmacoffee.com. You will see a lot of it there, and it will also reference you to our social media for the farm, Finca Terrerito, which we refer to it as Finca T. You'll see links at the Alma website for that, and you'll be able to see pictures, some of our coworkers. You'll see the tilapia farm, the cattle, etc. One of the things we're doing right now, Kevin, with the idea of sustainability and making sure that our co-workers have a place of employment for the next 500 years is we're building a water reservoir to capture between 15 to 25 million gallons of rainwater mm. with the idea of using that rainwater to irrigate the farm. Global climate change, Kevin, it's real. We're seeing it down in the tropics at the farm level. Last year, we did not get anywhere near the amount of rain that we usually get and the farm needs to continue to produce the best coffee in the world. Hmm. So I am able to go into a project like this, which is a three-year project, right? But with the vision that without water, this farm is not gonna be around 300 years from now. But if we do things right, it will. And again, if you were to ask me, Al, what's going to be your return on that water reservoir? <laughs> I will no longer be in this earth, yeah. Kevin, and I won't be able to recuperate my investment there. But it's not about that for me. You know, it's about the reward of having Marcial's grandkids yeah. being able to make a decent living working this land. So what's the saying? Plant a tree that you'll never sit under the shade of. You know, someone else's grandchildren are going to sit under the shade of the tree or enjoy the benefits of this reservoir that you're building. So, folks, you're just going to have to come back next week and hear the conversation, how we continue this, and talk about what's happening with the fifth generation of the family farm with Al's children. So we're going to put a bow on this one for now. Al, thanks so much for joining. This is a delightful story. I know that folks are going to benefit from it and folks are going to want to follow along and see what happens. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Al. So when I started, I thought this would be a conversation that included Al and then working in Harry and Leticia. 
what we decided or what I decided midstream was we're going to make this a two-part conversation. So next week, I sit down with Harry and Leticia for their part of the conversation. So let me reflect on this amazing conversation with Al. You know, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know I use the word humans first a lot and I'm part of the humans first movement. Well, Al talked about people first, and I loved this threefold vision and mission of their approach at Alma Coffee, and that is improving lives, sustainable farming, and extraordinary coffee. I believe that's a threefold model any of us can apply to the work we do, that we want to impact and improve lives. We want to do our work in a way of excellence, sustainability in the farming, and we want to deliver extraordinary results in whatever that is. So, wow, I loved that conversation, and I loved the focus that Al brought to this. You know, there's so many things that Al was talking about that were humans first focused without necessarily using the vocabulary. You know, words matter, and and when Al's keeps talking about the we rather than me and talking about our associates or our partners and the colleagues we have. I just loved that language and that they're looking at this as a partnership program and they are there to make an impact. And I love that they're looking not just six months down the road, not just six years down the road, but six generations down the road. How are we going to impact the future generation? So I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. I hope there's something here that has inspired you on your second mountain quest. So I highly recommend, if you've not yet picked up the book, The Second Mountain by David Brooks, pick that up. We'll include a link in the show notes, and I'll include a link in the show notes to the article that David wrote preceding the release of the book that gives you an overview, and that'll help you understand whether or not you want to order the book. So until we connect next week where you get to hear more of the Alma Coffee story, I want to encourage you to live, love, and lead with purpose. Do you have a high-stakes initiative that is stuck, stalled out, or stymied, and you're not sure what to do now and how to forge a path forward? The situation is not as grim as you think it is. We can help. Contact Kevin to explore how a winning conversation may be exactly what you need to break the gridlock, unite your team in purpose, and accelerate traction. Call 678-744-5111 or email kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com. 